Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another NBA season. Welcome to Toronto, home of the world champion Raptors. Yay! It was a thrilling season last year from the opening tip-off to Kawhi Leonard's incredible the shot in Game 7 against Philadelphia to the victory in the finals over Golden State. What an upset. Alas, Kawhi has since decamped for sunny LA, and how Kyle, Mark, Siam, and the boys will do without him remains to be seen. As you probably know, the NBA has been in the news of late for reasons other than the games themselves. Just a couple of weeks ago, Houston Rockets executive Daryl Morley posted a tweet with an image that read, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. The tweet was immediately disowned by Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta, and Morley later deleted the post and tweeted an apology. Then NBA commissioner Adam Silver intervened, apologizing to China and the Chinese people for Morley's act of insensitivity. Then the US Congress got into the act. In a rare show of bipartisanship, both Democrats and Republicans criticized Silver for appeasing the Chinese government. But Silver shot back, explaining that apologizing to China was by no means inconsistent with upholding an MBA's employees' rights of free speech. Morley, after all, is entitled to his opinions, just like everyone else. In fact, the NBA loves free speech. It's just that this must be balanced against the league's obligations to China its largest and fastest growing market. There's an old saying from the Watergate investigations that goes, follow the money. The money in this case is the billions of dollars the NBA stands to lose if China should stop televising its games or selling its swag. If you've been following the news, you'll know that just this week, LeBron James has gotten into the act as well he of the multi-billion dollar Nike contract. There are a lot of sneakers to sell in China. Against this financial imperative, the cause of the pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong carries little weight. Protesters, after all, do not pay the bills. The irony here is that in recent years, the NBA has promoted itself as the sports league with a conscience taking stands against gender discrimination and assorted other social evils. This is all very well until the NBA discovers that doing the right thing doesn't necessarily coincide with the bottom line. And in that conflict, the bottom line has the clear advantage. Democracy and human rights are lovely ideals, but they seem insubstantial compared to the highly material dollars to be made in a global sports and media enterprise. As Christian literary critic Alan Jacobs has recently written, written apropos the NBA affair, quote, when shareholders and the bottom line are not benefited by democracy, then democracy gets flushed down the toilet. The point of this lengthy introduction is not really to embarrass NBA officials, who are doing an excellent job of doing that without my help. <laughs> I'm not talking about sports executives. I'm talking about us. 
I'm talking about our conflicted loyalties. I'm talking about the fact that we are caught up in vast systems of information, power, and wealth that overwhelm us even as they seduce us. For instance, I wrote this sermon on an Apple computer. And in recent weeks, Apple announced, along with Google, that it was removing various apps disapproved of by the Chinese government. So am I too implicated in what's happening in Hong Kong? It would seem so. We have a piece of global capitalism, and global capitalism has a piece of us. The Bible has a name for the condition I've been describing. That name is Babylon. Many of you will know the famous medieval example often given for the fourfold sense of scripture. Jerusalem, which is literally a city in the Middle East, but is also allegorically the church, morally, the faithful human soul, and anagogically or eschatologically, the heavenly city. Not every text is going to have this fourfold meaning, but these are some of the typical things we can do with the text. But notice, we can ring similar changes on Babylon. Literally, it was the great empire that ruled the Fertile Crescent in the sixth century BC. Allegorically, it is the world as a system opposed to God. Morally, it is the soul that loves the world more than God, while anagogically, it is the great whore Babylon, humanity's effort to fulfill its own destiny, to be its own project. Call it negative eschatology. It is this city that the Lord brings crashing down in the book of Revelation, releasing cries of lament from those who had invested in her wealth and shouts of jubilation and triumph from those who worship the Lord. In that day, Babylon's story will come to an end while Jerusalem's story is only beginning. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Yet before I burst out singing Handel's Messiah, I had better stop and remind us all that we are not there yet. History goes on in surprising ways, and indeed one of the su surprises is found in our reading this afternoon from the prophet Jeremiah. Famously, Jeremiah warns the inhabitants of Judah that they should not revolt against the occupying power, and tells the exiles already in Babylon that they should wait. Don't rebel, don't withdraw, don't become bitter and alienated, but rather build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In Babylon's shalom, peace, well-being, you will find your own shalom. Now, it would be an understatement to say that many people did not take kindly to Jeremiah's message. Most notably, he was opposed by rival prophets, such as Hananiah and Shemaiah, who charged Jeremiah with what we would call defeatism, or sleeping with the enemy. 
Surely Israel's place is in Jerusalem. Surely the Lord's will is that Israel return there as soon as possible and recover her own independent existence as a nation. But Jeremiah stood firm. The exile is not some historical accident. It is the Lord's own will. It is the Lord himself who has sent Israel into exile. Nor is it especially helpful to engage in magical thinking and pretend this thing hasn't happened to us. Here we are, by the waters of Babylon, weeping indeed. Jeremiah never says you shouldn't weep. But also being generative and productive. The command from Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, is still in force. Even, perhaps we should say, especially in Babylon. And so, build houses, plant gardens, take wives for your sons and give your, give your daughters in marriage, and in general, go about the business of living into the blessing that the Lord has in store for his people. You see, the false prophets say that they are the revolutionaries, that they have a plan for a quick return to Jerusalem. We will resist Babylon, they say, maybe forge an alliance with Egypt, do whatever it takes to make things right again. We will reclaim the land, repair the temple, restore the priesthood. Surely the exile is a problem that can be solved given enough hard work and political ingenuity. Yet it is Jeremiah who is the true revolutionary here. His revolutionary plan is stay put, plant vineyards, have babies, Seek the shalom of Babylon, yes, Babylon, as if it were your own city and its citizens, your fellow Jews. The exile will indeed come to an end, but this will be in the Lord's good time and not according to any human calculation or calendar. Jeremiah 20, 29 ends with the Lord's own promise of a return from exile a deliverance to be effected not by Israel's efforts, but by the Lord's own hand. A similar revolutionary spirit may be discerned in Paul's second letter to Timothy, a small portion of which we heard read today as our epistle reading. Calling this letter revolutionary may seem surprising. Doesn't that designation better apply to Romans, say, with its stupendous apocalyptic teaching about the establishment of God's righteousness in Christ? Or Galatians, sometimes called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty? Theologians love the Paul of these letters because he seems to traffic in grand themes and big ideas. He's an intellectual, just like us. The Paul of First and Second Timothy and Titus, not so much. These pastoral epistles are more mundane they treat the gospel less as a revelation exploding downward from heaven than as a deposit of faith to be handed down faithfully from one generation to the next. They deal with ministry and authority and false teachers. Above all, we might say that they address the question of time. What does it mean when Christ's appearing is unexpectedly delayed and the church has to confront the challenges of doctrine? teaching, catechesis, and managing conflict in the church. All this seems like fairly boring and tedious stuff 
compared with the genius at work in Galatians and Romans. And yet, as Kierkegaard would remind us, Paul was not a genius. He was an apostle. And it is the apostle's task to bear not only the message of Christ, but the form of Christ in a hostile world. We might even say in Babylon. Babylon was one of the early Christian names for Rome, and it is in Rome that Paul finds himself imprisoned for the gospel's sake. Paul's imprisonment is a type of Christ's own sufferings. Not only that, but Paul views his sufferings as benefiting his fellow believers, who are the elect of God. He states the basis of his confidence in a faithful word, a pistos logos, that he quotes to Timothy. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. To die with Christ is to live with Christ. That's a familiar enough trope. But both the dying and the living take the form of enduring, hanging in there, holding out, digging in, being patient. That would be another good translation. To deny deny Christ would be to lose him, because confessing him before the world is an essential part of the life of being in Christ. But though we be unfaithful, yet he is faithfulness itself the very incarnation of the covenant fidelity of God. Is this not revolutionary stuff? It is the sort of revolution Jeremiah would have recognized, maybe even did recognize, when he counseled the Jews to plant vineyards and have children and seek the well-being of Babylon. Please note, seeking Babylon's good is not the same thing as embracing Babylon's ways. Plant the vineyards, have the children, seek your children's good, but also maintain your fidelity to the covenant. It is essential to the church's freedom in Babylon that she must not look like Babylon, should look quite different, in fact, the way Jews in Babylon stood out as a peculiar people. Both Jeremiah and 2 Timothy can serve as templates for the church's own diaspora existence among the nations. But what precisely does that look like? There's no single answer to that question. You'll be glad to know that in this sermon I'm not going to try to solve the question of Christian social ethics or of Christ and culture in a definitive fashion. Nevertheless, there are a few things we can say. For example, as the church negotiates its way through Babylon, it is always under the compulsion to engage in truthful speech. Jeremiah stood apart from the false prophets in part because he was able to call things by their right name. The false prophets were spinning self-deceiving fantasies of return, while Jeremiah, as an instrument of the Lord's word, was able to discern the possibilities of life in exile. The Lord's hard word, stay put, was in fact his gracious word a word of blessing and hope. 
The gift of truthful speech is a precious thing, and it's important to note that it's more than simply freedom of expression. A crucial human value, to be sure, and something the protesters in Hong Kong are willing to take risks and suffer for. Even Adam Silver acknowledges the importance of freedom of expression. But truthful speech is more than that, more demanding than that. Truthful speech, which originates in a kind of vision, means, means abandoning our ideas of how things should be in favor of seeing how they really are. Martin Luther called that the theology of the cross. It also means exercising the courage to speak the truth, even when that cuts against the grain of self-interest or the views of people like us, whether that be middle-class Canadians, academics, Anglicans, evangelicals, and so on. It would be nice if the church could lecture Adam Silver and the NBA on such truthfulness, but I fear that we are not very practiced at it ourselves. It is something we need to keep working at. The other counsel for life in Babylon, of course, is simply to pay attention to our neighbors in their specific and concrete need. We are to seek the good of the city God has set us in, just as Christ sought the good of the men and women he encountered as he walked the roads of Palestine in the first century. There were 10 lepers healed. Why 10? Because they asked. Jesus saw them, as many, I'm sure, did not, and took pity on them. And why did the one return? Because he was given to see and to acknowledge the one who had healed him. And he was a Samaritan, Luke adds, in an almost gratuitous insistence on the surprising character of this other. Babylonians, Samaritans, Chinese, Hong Kongers, even pagan Torontonians, the Lord has taken pity on them all and summons us to care for them in quite specific and unsentimental ways. Not as an act of charity or to inflate our self-image, but simply because it is the Lord's will, a form of his grace to us in the form of our suffering neighbor. We are in exile, friends. We will not forget Jerusalem, the earthly one, but especially the heavenly one, the Jerusalem that is above. But during this time in Babylon, the Lord wills blessing for us and bids us extend that blessing to others. May it be so. Amen.